My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 18, and to remind you, we're reading out of the NIV version of the Bible. We'll be reading Genesis 33 and 34, Job 23 and 24, and Proverbs 3, verse 13 through 18. A quick warning, this section of Genesis 33 and 34 is going to have adult content that may not be suitable for children, uh, specifically sexual violence. So if you find this triggering, I just want you to think carefully before you proceed. Genesis 33, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front. Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamar, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamar, Get me this girl as my wife. 
When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamar, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamar said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamar. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his family, father's family, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all the men were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Job 23. Then Job replied, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what, would, what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge." But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. 
when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his ways without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? There are those who move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox and pledge. They thrust the needy from the paths and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothing, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaths but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They they tread the wind presses yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its path. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up, kills the poor and needy, and in the night steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, Thieves break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, midnight is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. Yet they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion of the land is cursed, so that no one goes to the vineyards. As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm feasts on them. The wicked are no longer remembered, but are broken like a tree." They prey on the barren and childless woman. And to the widow they show no kindness, but God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they are exalted, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like heads of grain. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? Proverbs 3, verse 13. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. 
Okay, so if you're experiencing whiplash in this story because you're like, oh, reconciliation, and then, oh my gosh, a rape and murder, what's happening? So let's review. In the last story, we read about Jacob, who was sending gifts to Esau, which is very different from his actions before that, which were theft against Esau. Father Mike Schmitz points out, but Jacob has and is maturing in his trust in the Lord, and he is in a place now where he is giving gifts instead of taking them, and his heart is maturing. In this story, we read about Esau greeting his brother and offering redemption, forgiveness, and restoration. It's receiving forgiveness. It's giving forgiveness. For those who have read the prodigal son story in Luke 15, verse 11 to 32, the term prodigal, which means like reckless giving and love, it's something that's hard for me to reconcile as a marketing business professor because prodigal is like excessive giving it all, right? But that's the kind of God we serve. So the term prodigal will relate to our understanding of one of the coolest parables, in my opinion, in the New Testament. Also, if you haven't read Dr. Tim Keller's Prodigal God book, which dives deep into this parable, I 100% recommend it. I remember using it in a consumer behavior class, and I use it all the time in my life and uh, self-reflection. So some Jewish scholars see a partial pattern link between the Jacob and Esau story and the prodigal son, or better captioned, the prodigal God story by Dr. Keller. So I sometimes uh, listen to an impact campus ministry uh, called the Bema podcast, and note the word Bema or Bema is a Hebrew word that refers to the elevated platform in the center of a first century synagogue where the people of God read the text. So the president of Bema, Marty Solomon, really believes that understanding the biblical text better helps you to understand God more fully. Related to this story that we're talking about, today, or we read out loud, they talk on the podcast about how this story of Esau, who is the doer, is somewhat like the older brother from the prodigal parable in Luke. And Jacob plays the role of the more wayward younger son, in the beginning at least. Then, in this part of the story we are reading today, Esau actually models from the Luke parable the father who welcomes home his wayward son. And in the Luke parable, tragically, the elder brother does not welcome his younger brother home. So this older brother does welcome his younger brother home, and God is prodigal. And while he wants us to pursue righteousness, he doesn't want us to pursue rightness, particularly our own, and become hard of heart and unforgiving. So we don't want to be that younger brother who is trying to take and deceive and get what we want and pursue our pleasure. And we also don't want to be the elder brother in the sense of the Luke story where we just want to be right and do the right thing and then shun or cast out others who have made mistakes but are pursuing and coming back for restoration and redemption. So there's something really cool that's being outlined here that um, we keep developing as we read more in the Bible. Really cool, the patterns. Okay, the transition between this story and the next is absolutely startling. It feels to me a bit like whiplash. It's like my heart softens as I read about this reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. And then an iron wall seems to lock down over my heart. It's like I feel it harden as I read about what Shechem did to to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, the sister of the 12, 12 brothers of Israel who become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
I'm upset that this is the only thing we know about her and that we never hear from her directly. Ugh, the authors. I'm upset that it reads like the Stockholm Syndrome when, where like after the fact, Shechem is saying that he loves her and wants to marry her and is speaking to her tenderly. I guess I'm also frustrated because it seems like in the previous stories with like Sarah and Abraham and Rebecca and Isaac, while their husbands tried to give away their wives in moments of fear, there's really no talk of like sexual violence, right? Does anyone else feel this way? Could just be me, but it's it's startling. Then to add hurt to hurt, we see specifically two of the sons of Israel or Jacob suggest that Shechem, his father Hamar, and all their men get circumcised. While this seems to be an agreement, only two of them kind of go in for the murder. And as the price of marrying the sister, they decide, you know, let's tell them all to get circumcised. Simeon and Levi... Which I find interesting. If you've got like 11 brothers, because Benjamin isn't born yet, if you've got 11 brothers and only two of them are doing the killing, I find this interesting. I don't know what the backstory is. Did the other brothers and Jacob not know about this part? Did they have a different plan? Like what went on here? And then Shechem and Hamar, um, they take, so the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, take the sister back. Then in a dark irony, And this is where the verse seems to say that all the brothers participate in stealing. And it's like dark irony, though. They steal all the women. I'm like, so it's like the crime extended in return. They take the children, livestock for themselves. Notice there is no like cry or call to the Lord. There is no word of God telling them to respond in this way. Also note, there is no God affirming word that this was a good choice or response. Just because something happens in the Bible or a chosen family or family member of God is doing something does not mean it was the right course of action. Note, we've been reading a lot (laughs) about their mistakes. And remember, we are being shaped by the Genesis 1 and 2 God-ordered story because he's a God of order and love, and he wants to bless and make us a blessing and share. And we're also learning about who God is and what he wants from us when he's calling people and responding to their choices. And then we're also learning about God's character and what we're supposed to model based on the observations of outcomes, of the actions the people of God are doing and what it leads to. So if it leads towards more chaos and darkness, we know these were probably not the best choices. But if it leads more towards order and a sense of rule that is just and fair, more like the Genesis 1 story, then we know this is part of God's continuation of redemption, restoration, and his rescue plan. So Father Mike Schmitz points out that it's hard to tell or know whether this was vengeance or justice. And if Jacob perhaps wants something different in the how than the sons did, this tribal law that they're living over under in this story is a bit complicated by the fact that the people keep deceiving and taking, taking and deceiving within their families, uh, with their neighbors. It makes it hard to tell. We do know that God knows the heart of ourselves, and Father Mike Schmitz points out that it is rare in the Hebrew Bible for something to be stated as, it ought not be done. And in verse 34-7, the rape was not only described as outrageous, something shocking and fury-provoking, but the author makes it clear that this is wrong. It ought not to be done. It It's also not clear whether Jacob knew what his sons were planning in its fullness or whether Simeon and Levi knew themselves. Maybe they didn't even know. They were just angry and they planned to do something and they didn't know what. And maybe their initial plan was justice and maybe it became vengeance. I don't really know. 
I'm leaving. I'm leaning towards it became. I don't know if it was calculated, but it became vengeance because I think it leads towards more chaos and darkness. Think about the sheer scope of it from what I'm seeing. Um, Taking all the women and children, the passage ends with Jacob's frustration and realistic risk probability assessment. As he communicates the increased chaos and potential darkness to Simeon and Levi, as their enemies, the Canaanites and Perizzites, could easily join forces and defeat them based on their actions, or should I say reactions. But the brothers' last words seem to be focused on the mistreatment of their sister and the need for justice. So it's like you can relate to that as well. Hmm, a lot to think about. While women have all already been sexual victims in more than one case in the stories we've read so far, we have seen how God has cared about this exploitation. Remember the story of Hagar, the immigrant. And later in the Old Testament— In Judges 4, we'll read about Jael, who's a female and a wife who deceived and violently killed Sisera, a powerful enemy of Israel. And if you have read the book of Judith, a part of the Catholic Bible, or the Protestants call it the Apocrypha, Judith also used her power as a female to seduce an army general, another enemy of the chosen people of God, and kills him. In this book of Judith, chapter 11, the Lord has struck him down by the hand of a woman. The point I'm trying to share is not violence or violence and retaliation, but that God can and does use women to exact justice. They are not always or only the ones in the story having violence and injustice done to them. I think that's important to just point out. For me, these stories back-to-back remind me of how this happens in life sometimes. We are given a blessing, and then something dark and nefarious happens to us, or we react to something dark and nefarious with rage and perhaps vengeance. I'm reminded to thank God and savor the blessings and the moments of restoration and redemption, and know that I need forgiveness and I need to give forgiveness, and to name the things that are bad, that are evil, and do everything I can, we can, to get that darkness out of our hearts, our heads, and our own behavior years and to help stop, prevent, and respond to the bad and evil that exists around us. But I'm convicted to cry out and call to the Lord for the how-to, the how-to-do-it, and not to charge in and exact a similar crime on a larger scale. In a nonviolent way, or or yes, non-physically violent. I mean, one of the things I've just learned in marketing and in business is that it's important, even when I'm angry, not to reply to an email, but to maybe put in a draft box. Definitely don't put someone's name in the to section, but to just pray over it and give myself at least a day um, to think about if I need to say something, what I need to say, and really allow time for the Lord to dwell in my heart before I go back and think about the the what and if I need to respond and how. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.